Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I'm so delighted today. Barbara Scher is joining us from Toulouse, France. She is the author of seven books and probably many more coming. They're all known across the world. One of her first books was published 30 years ago, went all over the world. It's in many different languages called Wishcraft. She is the author of I Could Do Anything If I Knew What It Was, How to Discover What You Really Want and How to Get It, Wishcraft, How to Get What You Really Want, It's Only Too Late If You Don't Start Now, How to Create Your Second Life at Any Age, Live the Life You Love in 10 Easy Step-by-Step Lessons, Refuse to Choose, Use All of Your Interests, Passions, and Hobbies to Create the Life and Career of Your Dreams, Winning Ways for Creating Work That You Love, and Barbara Shear's Idea Book. She is known as the godmother of life coaching. She's considered a stand-up comic with a message. And her messaging is about not only turning dreams into reality, which is very germane to rainmaking, but it's rainmaking on your own soul's terms. I consider her a midwife, a creative midwife, a soul midwife of millions of people across the world who have potentially lost their way, myself included, in the sense that we think that all of our ideas have to make money and everything we do has to make money. And she has been extremely helpful assisting people who have many interests. And many of the people who have many interests are often not assisted through their lives, given the hard structure of thinking about it. She has been on many, many radio and television shows across the world, from CNN to Oprah. She is really a delight, and she has a way of bringing you back to your curiosity, to getting you to fall in love with your gifts and your own genius. It is a great honor, and as far as rainmaking goes, you are the godmother of rainmaking, too. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Barbara Scher from Toulouse, France. Good morning. Hello. Hello. What a lovely introduction. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much, Kim. What time is it in Toulouse? Right now, 5.05 p.m. I want to ask you a couple of personal questions. What got you to Toulouse, France? Well, my son and I, my younger son and I, have been working together for many years. And he's my book editor as well as doing many other things for me. And he um, lives, he lived in Corfu, Greece with his son. And he said, you know, this is getting... Number one, this is getting too tough, this six-hour difference. You wake up, I'm going to sleep. You know, you're going to sleep, I'm waking up. So why don't you find a place in the middle somewhere that you'd be willing to live, and let's both move there. Also, the island of Corfu wasn't a great place for schooling, and or it, it, it's not so healthy either. It's pretty muggy, and, and he was getting sick, and his son was getting sick. So I said to him, I'll tell you what, Italy's wonderful, but nothing works. Germany, everything works, but I don't know about, you know, I like visiting, but I'm not sure. But France sounds cool. He said, France. I said, yeah, and here's what I want in France. I was very clear. I said, I want someplace that's 800 feet or higher for global warming. I want to live in a town uh, that is not hot and muggy, so you can just forget the, you know, where everybody else wants to go, Nice and those places. Um, And I want... um, I want it to have a university so there'll be good bookstores and movies. And I'd like it to have industry so people are earning money. I don't want to live in a museum somewhere because they always hate outsiders. So he called me about two months later. He said, I found it. When are you coming? (laughs) Wow, because I hear Toulouse is very creative, too. Toulouse, he's incredible. Yeah, Toulouse is it. And, um, you know, they've got a lot of universities here. 
They've got uh, Airbus and a lot of other big things being constructed. So people come from all over the world. You've got, and they're really nice. There's no tourists, and they're really nice to outsiders. They're, they forgot to be superior, like you expect the French to be in Paris. So it's just a lovely place to be, and they do everything for kids. They've got so many things for kids to do. And um, so I'm really happy here, and he's happy here, and my grandson's happy here. So that's what we're doing here. I just want to let you know. Put it in your schedule. I'll see you soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. You have it's a new neighbor, a, Barbara. <laughs> well, it's a great place to live if you want to move, but it's not such a great place to visit. I mean, it's it's charming, but if I were visiting France, I mean, I'd go to Paris, and then I'd go to, uh, you know, a lot of the lovely towns that, that, where they make the mustard and they have the good food. And the you mean like Provence? Yes, exactly, but I wouldn't live there. I, this is a, this is such a livable place. I just love it. I always wanted to see how you got there, <laughs> and, and and that's it. And now we're working together, like you know, half the day every day. He takes care of his son the rest of the time, and and I take care of my other projects that I do on my own the rest of the time. So we're good. We're especially good because he cooks and likes to clean the kitchen. I just love that in a man, don't you? <laughs> Love that in anybody? Are you Just kidding? Leave grandma, leave grandma alone. She's writing. Yeah. <laughs> it makes for a nurturing person. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. You have two children, right? I have two children. My older son lives in Italy. He's a musician and a tournament chess player. Oh really? Yeah. And Matthew's also a musician and pretty much everything. He's sort of the inspiration for one of the chapters in Refuse to Choose, the book about people with so many interests that they can't stand to choose one. He's the inspiration for what they call, what they call as a pejorative, what they call as a put down, um, a jack of all trades, but which is and was meant as a huge compliment. Because uh, another term for a jack of all trades is most valuable player. You know, MVP. <laughs> he, can, he can do anything and he steps forward and likes to do it. And, um, so he's, that's what, that's what his, uh, so he can, he's a language guy. He, he says, I only speak, and he names, what is it? Well, I studied, he studied Latin in school. It wasn't my idea. I could never learn Latin. He studied Latin and Spanish, of course. That doesn't count. But then he liked Greek because it was so difficult, and he learned that, and he's got a certificate in German. And he said when we traveled other times, he said, I don't speak Italian, but he spoke it the entire time we were in Italy. And, I mean, I think, I wouldn't be surprised if he picked up Croatian just because we were visiting. He's a language guy. Oh, neat. And his son is the same. He's completely fluent in French now and uh, English and Greek. Now, do you speak any French? Well, let's put it this way. I try, when I go out, I try to speak French to people and their response is in very, and I think my French's pronunciation is rather good. <laughs> but I, <laughs> when I say something to anyone, they say, ooh, do you like me to speak English? And I go, oh, wow. Well, first of all, that means my French is bad. And secondly, how'd you know I spoke English? You know, but they always know and they're so sweet. And I say, okay. And they apologize for not knowing English, so I get to save face. I don't have any idea why they apologize, but, <laughs> you know, I should apologize. But I, they say, I do not speak very much English. I go, oh, that's all right. I'm <laughs> <laughs> thinking, I'm getting away with murder here. <laughs> that's great. That's great. That's very inspiring. Let's talk a little bit about soul candy. That seems to be one of the inspirations of working with you, being part of your club, hanging out with you, learning from you, going to workshops. And what is this well, about? Uh, typically, typically, 
I'll, I'll put most of my work in one category in this membership club in a different because I'm I'm doing something new, and um, it's kind of amazing how well it's working out. I w- I'm surprised myself, but typically what I've done since I did my first workshop, which turned into Wishcraft, and we have to make sure everybody knows it's not Witchcraft. Although <laughs> the very first radio show I ever got, and I was so excited about it, um, I walked into the studio. And this woman said, so we're witches. I said, I beg your pardon. She said, we're, we're witches. <laughs> I said, oh, I think you made a mistake. My book isn't witchcraft. It's wishcraft. She said, yeah, we did make a mistake. And then we looked at it and we read it. And we figured out that you do the same thing. You go from the spiritual to the material. So we'd like to have you on anyway. And I said, sure. <laughs> sure, whatever. <laughs> So, Wishcraft is the first book, and, and and I started out there. That was a workshop I did, and I turned it into a book with something I've never, ever changed from, the sort of four steps that I'm always, always covering in, in totally different ways in my later books and in my coaching classes and in my right speaking classes and in anything I do, my retreats, anything I do. And that is four, basically four things. The first is figuring out what you want which people have a hard time doing, but everybody knows what they want. They're just sort of not looking for it the right way. And then showing you how to get it, that's the easy part. That involves other people and idea parties and a lot of other things. And then the third part is once you've made your plan and you're moving much to your delight and surprise, my favorite part is resistance. And that happens to everybody, and I've never seen it handled right and I love being called the resistance whisperer because I feel like I do <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, and then after that, the fourth step is how to keep on keeping on, and that's all about success. T- taking a class or getting a coach or being part of a team, which I describe. And um, so those are basically the four steps in wishcraft. In I could do anything if I only knew what it was, which basically helps you figure out why you think you don't know what you want, what your blocks are. And um, and then to live the life you love, which is kind of a, a shoot you out of a cannon, um, whether you know what you want and whether you resist it or not, by the time you get to the fun 10th chapter, you are doing it, even though you didn't intend to, to your astonishment. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then I was um, asked to write, uh, it's only too late if you don't start now how to create your second life at any age, very different from any other books about that that I've ever seen, and um, and then refused to choose, and which came out in 2005 and six, which is about the people with so many interests. And and in all of them, it's the same thing. We, we just tie it to you. What do you want? How do you get it? What do you do when resistance rears its head? And it will because it's supposed to, because it's a survival mechanism. Uh, but you can't let it ruin your life. And then number five, how do you keep going when you know you never keep going at anything? And and my absolutely inspired answer to that, which is success teams. What I've done now, because I don't really know if I'm going to write any more books because I like this better, what I'm doing now in this membership club, which is uh, the hanging out part of Barbara's Club, um, is none of the goal searching at all. All and that's where soul candy comes in, which you so delightfully mentioned. You will look in vain. In, in, I mean, the membership club—you get three things a week, 
and on Monday you usually get a, a, a video of me saying something outrageous in front of a large group of people <laughs> and make, make you laugh. And that's all. And then on Wednesday you get what I call an identity um, exercise. And the first ones are like just sense things, you know, take some rosemary, put it in your pocket, take it out, squeeze it and sniff it four times a day, something that simple. They get more complex, but then they go back to simple. Um, and then on Fridays, Friday is, I was originally going to call it like a dilettante play date, but it is soul candy. It's the stuff that, it's the stuff that's if missing. If ever you were excited about something you saw on Nova or something or there was one great professor if you went to college or a great teacher in high school, somebody who inspired you in some way where you thought, my God, there's so much wonderful stuff to learn. And then you forgot it because if there's one thing that doesn't matter after you start working and living and raising your kids and paying your rent, it's, you know, it's these inspired trips into these places that where you just love learning this stuff that you have absolutely no use for which is what makes it wonderful. And, uh, and that's Fridays. And, f- and that's all that happens. And I say nothing to anybody about what is your goal. I never say, have you taken any steps? Make a plan. Um, I don't say anything like that. And one by one, every one of them is saying, oh, I'm just going to go ahead and do this. And they're signing up and they're doing things that they didn't even admit they loved before. And the surprise to me, the delight to me, um, this is like writing a book basically, but the difference is when I write a book, I lock myself away for two years and, you know, I come out to sleep and eat and then I go back and then the book is handed to the publisher and then a year later it comes out and then I start getting very nice letters from people, which is almost three years after I, I started writing it. And they say, thank you, you saved my life, I love this book, which I cannot say I don't love, I adore that. But what I always wanted to know, and in the workshops too, people would come up and say, I read your books, I love them, they changed my life. I'd say, what would you mind telling me exactly what it was that did that? And they'd all get embarrassed, you know, I thought, I can't ask people that. I'm putting them on the spot, you know, they don't remember. Well, what happens in, in hanging out, is that every time I give them a little piece of something, I'm flooded with these great comments. And they t- people talk to each other, and people tell me exactly how it impacted them, what happened. And it's the most deliciously gratifying thing in the world, and I know what works for sure. I don't have to guess while I'm doing it, which is what I do when I lock myself away for two years. Well, you also have kind of like a living creative laboratory happening, right? In a way. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. So I've got this stuff. I'm sending it out with my fingers crossed. And what it is, basically, there's a structure to it, but you can't see it. I mean, you shouldn't be able to see it if I've done my work right. And sometimes when people, one or two people get in and say, I don't feel like we're going anywhere occasionally. And I say, well, you know, if you want to move faster, you can do this and this and go here. But the truth is, this is rehab for all the Puritan, all those victims of Puritanism and the victims of, you know, the male military model of mighty success and, you know, how to uh, how to be a killing, crashing success and this time really get yourself up off the ground and this time really do it, you know, that kind of thing where they have to keep renewing your energy level because it's so unnatural to rev somebody up. They never last. They just have to keep coming back. And, you know, which uh, this is like 
different. I call it, I say it's rehab kids. You just um, cross your fingers that I know what I'm doing and don't worry about it. Not that anybody does except one or two people. They're ha- they, but the things I'm learning about the people who ask questions and say, this, this is what, this, thank you for this. It came at the right time. Here's why. I'm getting all those details I've been aching for all my life, even when you run a workshop. You know, you can tell with the one or two people you work with in front of everybody exactly what they're reacting to. So you can follow them to the right place. But even so, I'm basically performing and they're performing their tasks in small groups that I don't go into because I inhibit them. You know, I mean, I let them work alone. And then they come back and I talk to the whole group and I never find out what I want to know, which is how did that one affect you? Every single person person I've ever worked with is so different from everyone else. You never know exactly what's going to be the sentence or the thought that finally hits them. And I get letters from people who say, you know, Barbara, you said this eight times. I remember you saying it, but for somehow, for some reason, this time my head went, oh, that's what you mean. And everything has changed. You know, so I want it to work everybody and nobody is like anybody else. So that's the delight of, I mean, I started this program to let people get to know each other and I thought, well, I'll automate it, you know, so it can keep running even after I don't want to do it anymore. And I cannot keep out of those discussions. I try, I try to stop, but I jump in all the time. <laughs> you got a tiger by the tail here. Yeah. I, well, I love them. I mean, I love them. They're keeping me from doing all the rest of my work. I love them. <laughs> I was listening to an interview that you have posted on your Facebook page. You didn't say it exactly like this, but in essence, you were commenting on the fact that people have this obsession with turning ideas into financial opportunities as if we can't just run with ideas for the sake of our love and excitement about them. And the other thing you talked about, you were talking about an example of how you went to the Rotary Club to speak. I guess you were supposed to speak for 45 minutes and then they only gave you five. Yeah, And the question all, you yeah. asked the guys at the Rotary Club was so <laughs> profound. That Say it to the audience. They were to me and they were going to try to drag me off so I to get their attention. There's a bunch of slightly overweight men in, in dark suits, you know. So, yes. Uh, and I said, uh, how many of you have a lot of books around the house, uh, laying open around the house that you haven't finished? And they looked at me and they almost all raised their hands. And I said, <laughs> what makes you think you haven't finished them? That was so profound. Can you speak about that for a minute? Because that was like, woo. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad because people really get so mad at themselves for not finishing books and other things. I said to them, what makes you think you're not finished? And they looked like, what? And I said, well, you know, I've published books. The publisher wants 250 pages. That's how many you manufacture properly. What makes you think that you have to stop reading after 250 pages? 250 pages wasn't written for you. It was written for the publisher or it was written, you know, to make the book fat enough so that the author would get enough money for it. What's that got to do with you? And he went, what? I said, the truth is that as long as you're interested in a book, it's the right book for you to be reading. And if another book looks more interesting, then the first one has, you've gotten what you wanted. And the second book has what you want. And I said, think about it this way. I said, you know, we're, we're always scolding ourselves for not finishing books as if that 250 pages was some kind of holy writ. But think about a bee. A bee goes from one flower to another flower. It spends a certain amount of time at each one. And none of us ever looks at a bee and says, bad bee. You never <laughs> I love stick that. With anything. Naughty bee. 
you know, we figure if it's doing that, there must be a good reason. And the difference between me and the Puritans who the rest of us have been taught to listen to is, I figure if you've got 10 books lying around the house and they're not finished, there must be a good reason. Not what our original Puritanical forefathers said, which is you're no damn good and you don't finish anything, try harder, which seems to be the level everybody's gotten to. You know, why didn't you do that? I'm bad. I'll try to get better. And I keep thinking, yeah, but there, too many people do this. There must be a good reason. And there is a good reason. If you pay attention to your interests, look, you can't always, if you're taking a course and you're going to be responsible for the last chapter, you have to read it. But if you're not taking a course and you pick that book up because you thought you could get something out of it that you want, well, then I guess you should do the same thing you should do at a smorgasbord restaurant. Pick what you want. Look at it. And if anything else it looks interesting, read it if you got the time. Because if you're interested in something, there's a good reason. You know, I did a quote recently in the Hanging Out thing. It was called How to Be a Scholar. I'm not a scholar. I never was one. I loved college because I just loved learning. I didn't know you were supposed to major in anything. <laughs> so they, they finally made me. I was utterly disappointed. But but I went on and off for eight years because I had to drop out and work and go back to school, even though school didn't cost much. But I was, you know, I had to pay for my rent and everything. And uh, I just loved school. And um, I was, you know, I was in no way a scholar. I was a dabbler. There's no question about it. I just loved learning, and I loved these teachers who thought that English literature was the most important thing that had ever happened. And you would listen to them, and if they were good teachers, you would think, my God, it is the most important thing that ever happened until your next class, which would be about something else. If you have a great teacher, you just take whatever they teach, you know, because a great teacher always ends up teaching everything. But what I found in the beginning of this book, I was in a bookstore and I picked up a book called Latin Literature, uh, Latin Literature in the Middle Ages. And I thought, you know, I don't know anything about that. So naturally I picked it up. And there was this famous scholar. And in the beginning of it, he said, if you want to be an original scholar, you can't go looking for something that proves the theory you have. He said, you have to look through all the information, keep reading. And then when something jumps off the page, something you love or something you hate, or something you don't know why it jumps off the page, make note of it, even before you have any idea why. He said, because it will, he said, the, the ideas have to flash off the page, and then they'll come together in your mind. And that is an original thinker. That's how you get originality, not by being disciplined, but by being sensitive to what you're interested in, what grabs you, even if you don't know why. And one of my biggest efforts and I do it everywhere, but I especially do it in the Hanging Out program, which is a year long, which I love. I love I have that much time. One of the most important things is you have to, I know you have to, you know, get up and go to work and make your rent and, you know, take your exams. I know what reality is. You know, I raised two kids alone without a nickel. I know what, I love paying my gas bill. You know, I know what reality is. But when I say you have got to start having enormous respect for what you feel, find out what it means, and for what interests you, because there must be a good reason for it. That doesn't mean you give in to it. That means you sit back and say, here's a piece of evidence that is important. I'd better take a look at it. And that, so when I talk about people, people say, I don't know what I want. I say, of course you do. Everybody knows what they want. They say, no, really, I don't. And I say, let me ask you a question, because that's when the money stuff comes up, you know, 
oh, well, I, I, well, I do that makes money. I need the credentials. I'm too old. I'm this, I'm that. And I said, think about it, you know, think about it this way. If you take a horse and you lock it up in a barn, that horse, and you feed it, that horse does not know anything is wrong, but it's not happy. But if you put that horse out in a field, it will run. It will, it will kick up its heels. It will be happy. It will run, although it has no place to go. Why will it do that? It will do that because a horse... Oh, there's one of our French signals. Can you... Yeah, this is great. <laughs> because a horse is designed to run. That's its DNA. And you're designed to do something, probably a bunch of things. That's your DNA. And the only way nature has of talking to us and telling us what we were designed for is it makes the things it does not want us to do unpleasant, and it makes the things it does want us to do pleasant. Now, that goes for survival, so it makes us want to eat nice fattening foods and have sex, and, and it makes us want to take care of our babies, um, and it makes us not want to go jogging. <laughs> because Indeed. I have no idea why we would waste calories like that, because it thinks a famine is coming, and that's our, our new problem. But it also makes us, some of us love colors and some of us love cooking and some of us love space and others love time. And, and there's no particular way to test for that. We don't know what that is. You have to, you know, we're made up of, we're made up of the genes of a bunch of generations we have not kept track of and had no way to keep track of. We're made up of those genes in, in us since we were born receiving information, which makes us so we receive information differently from anyone else. And then we have our own particular history. We have, uh, you know, five brothers older than we are or a mother who's an opera singer or whatever, you know, whatever is fed into that. So each of us is so utterly unique, utterly unique. And there's only one way to push that frog aside, and, and that is to figure out what you love. And it isn't – so what I say to people who say, I don't know what I want, is I say, what you're doing is you're doing two things at the same time. The first part is what do you enjoy and love and what would you do if you were born rich instead of good looking and what would you do if you had a magic wand and, you know, just what would you do if you did not have to be practical? And the answer for that is comes from your taste buds almost. It's like, what flavor do you like? I like chocolate. Why? How the hell should I know? I don't know why I like chocolate. My taste buds tell me I like it. That's how I know. Well, that's true for anything you want. It's an emotion. It is not a reason. And so when you want something, you have to say, this is funny. I like to fold paper. Oh, I like shoes. I mean, dumb stuff. And you have to pay attention. And you just have to gather all these things. Like, hmm, what does that all mean? And when you don't like something, you say, I have to respect that. If I don't like that, I don't like it. I'll try it. I'll see if I change my mind, but if I don't, I'm going to respect that because this is my DNA talking to me and it is giving me my fingerprint. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. No matter what the state of the economy is, there will always be time-honored traditions and special events. The Sterling Hut has been in business since 2008, offering a wide range of fantastic sterling silver products, including finely crafted mint julep cups, personalized baby shower gifts, photo albums, exquisite jewelry boxes and awards, and so much more. The Sterling Hut is an authorized Silver Star international reseller of fine silver products and anniversary gifts. The business is owned by Jewel and Bob Howard. 
If you would be interested in buying someone a gift of pure sterling silver or sterling plated silver, you can call 1-888-819-1009. Get a 15% discount by going to the Sterling Hut, the Sterling, S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G, Hut, H-U-T, dot com, and saying it's rainmaking time. They will honor a 15% discount for you. Beautiful sterling silver gifts for all of life's occasions. Manufactured in Italy and handcrafted by skilled artisans. They can also be engraved in sterling picture frames, oval and rectangular silver trays, champagne ice buckets, silver goblets, coffee and tea service, coffee pots, silver mugs, candelabras, and silver jewelry unrivaled in design and style. Go to the Sterling Hut at sterlinghut.com. And back to the show. Don't you think, Barbara, that part of the solution on individual levels for people that are without formal jobs or who have lost their jobs or don't have any income instead of always trying to plug into existing scenarios, that if they would take this as an opportunity to do an internal checking, to go inward, that the treasure's there for how they even make income. Oh, absolutely. But there's a couple of things. When I say there are two parts to what I'm saying, the second part is once you tell me what you want, if you say what I want is to ride elephants while I'm making origami swans, Right, and it turns out you really mean it. It doesn't work unless you mean it. <laughs> then all we do is do we go to part two, and we part two is we in, we get a group of people and we have an idea party. We say um, Gertrude wants to ride elephants and make origami, um, and her obstacle is she doesn't know how to make money at it. She'll starve to death because that's the reality. Right. You know, if you're out of work, my advice is get a job in a pizza parlor, clean houses, or bring in income. Don't do anything you hate unless you're on the verge of running out of canned goods. Then you do anything that, you know, that won't get you killed. There's a reality there. And if you have to, but that doesn't mean you stay with that job. That means you pay your rent and get by and leave enough time to go searching for what you want because what you love is what you are talented at. And that can take years to develop. And even if you stay on it, and after that, you might make a fortune, or you might never make a fortune, but there's a solution for each of those. You know, uh, um, uh, Spielberg. Spielberg was taking movies when he was 10 years old. He didn't know if it would ever make money. He didn't have to make money when he was 10 years old. But by the time he got old enough to have to make money, people knew who he was. And that's one way of, he trusted his feelings of wanting to make movies. He trusted it. I wish everybody would. It often turns into something in which, first of all, if you do what you're gifted at, which is what you love, you're going to get better than anybody else in the world at it eventually. You're just going to be great at it because you have something going for you that everybody doesn't have. Does that pay? And do you want it to pay? Supposing it turns out that you're a really brilliant painter, you can do that for money or you can do that for yourself. And if you want money, sometimes I advise that it's best not to get paid for art. Because if you get paid, you have to do what people want you to do. And that's the exact antithesis of being an artist. An artist is always exploring and doing something new and listening, listening to the materials and listening to themselves to hear. They're always discovering. They can't be reined in 
and turned into a graphic artist for an advertising agency, or they'll destroy their ability to be artists. I have a dear friend of mine who is such a remarkable artist, and she's now going through this process where people are trying to commission her and start to drive the artistic process. And I gave her similar advice. I said, just do what you're called to do and do what you're passionate about. That's where your best art lies. And don't be at the mercy of this. Don't be at the mercy of this. Don't force it. If you're a poet and you go to work writing jingles, you know, or slogans for an ad agency, you won't be a poet for long. No poet has ever made money from poetry, including Homer. Nobody. But if you're a poet, you have to write poetry. I'll tell you something interesting, though. When It's Rainmaking Time went from, I started in television, local cable in Los Angeles, then I applied to all of these radio stations across America, got rejections for five years. And I'm very gifted at this. I mean, this is not my total life's it. work or like anything. You're, you're, you're swimming like a porpoise. <laughs> I've been on a lot of radio but, shows, Kim. <laughs> but thank you. But see, I view a part of what I do as listening. And listening for openings, okay? But I quit after five years. I quit looking. I gave up. I said, obviously, they're not interested, et cetera. But I knew it was crazy. Like, how is it possible they couldn't be interested when I'm gifted at this? And then my dear girlfriend said to me, I don't know what you're waiting for. Listen, bring it online and just offer it up. And forget the stations. Forget them. Forget them. Just go forward, okay? When I did go online years ago, it's nothing like it is today. So therefore, it all started. And then people kept coming to me. It was very interesting. And I'm sharing this with you because it's so poignant. People kept coming up to me and saying, well, if you're not making money at it, why are you doing it? And I said, I don't know how to make money at this online. What I was watching is a lot of the radio shows that go online superimpose the same model on radio and television ratings to look at whether a show is viable. So if you don't, when I say viable, like we have 25,000 people listening a month, okay? And it took three years to do this, okay? This is just with putting it out there. This is not major marketing, pushing. It's enough to do the programming. And at that time when I started it, I was doing three shows a week. And I was reading everybody's books. It was huge commitment of time. (laughs) Then finally I said, I'm done with this. Three times a week, reading everybody's books. I started to do it one a week, and I got way more joy with it, et cetera. But it was I know, interesting. Yeah, how to ruin your favorite dream. <laughs> exactly. But the one thing I wanted to tell you is that people kept coming in from the outside saying to me, well, if you're not making money, what are you going to do with it? I said, I'm setting it up so that if it makes money, great. If it doesn't make money, great. I'm doing it because I'm called to do it and offer it up out there. I bet you five bucks people kept coming up to you and saying, or writing you and saying that last show made a huge difference to me. Actually, you're right. I mean, I get emails every day of that, every That's day. Right. That's but right. it's interesting how that because outside American, thinking, Americans, and I think you're, you're, the Germans are the same, so I'm sure it's true. Um, we think that if something doesn't make money, it's just a hobby. And a hobby is something we think is cute and stupid and everybody does to relax so they can make money better. You know, you go fishing. That's a hobby. Uh, if you said, I want to go fishing, nobody expects you to make money from it. They go, oh, sure. Yeah, I like fishing, too. What do you do that's real? Now, everybody has to have money. Yeah. That's I mean, right. I have a consulting company, my company, The Rainmaking Company, which is a mission that started like over 25 years ago. But I noticed that when its rainmaking time began, 
I spent 80% of my time on its rainmaking time, putting it together, getting it in place, et cetera. And 20% of the time on my company was okay. I mean, it really was okay to get the thing rolling. And now I can go back and do the other things that I do with my company that I love. But it was very interesting because I did not even offer advertising until a few months ago. I made it available. Somebody asked, but I never said it's now available. But still, whether people do or they don't advertise, I press on and I no longer allow that type of input. This thing has been provisioned already to be everything it can be, no matter what. So, you know. I love that sentence you just said, everything it can be, no matter what. No matter what. That's just beautiful. The first show that I did, I'm sharing this with you because of who you are and the incredible teacher that you are. The first show I did online was with Dr. Muhammad Yunus, the founder of the Grameen Bank. And are you ready for this? Yeah. I didn't have the website built yet. I didn't have a distribution channel. I never knew him. I didn't have a contact to him. I ended up calling him at his home, spending all the time to find him. It's so funny because the ones you're supposed to do, do happen. And I respect that too. We did an hour and a half interview, et cetera. And then I sent it all over the United States and not one station, not one station would air it. Come on. No, I'm what not are you kidding. Talking about? Why I'm, not? They said it wasn't our kind of thing. Oh, well, then I guess, uh, I guess there was room for you. And I was devastated. And I even told them, I said, I can't believe this. But what I wanted to tell you is that you start how you start. And it may have been that for my journey, that's what I needed to do. In other words, it happened exactly the way it was supposed to happen, no matter what I did. And I consider myself to be somebody who really is gifted at making things happen, particularly for other people, not just for myself. But you know what? It didn't start that way. It really didn't. So in terms of what you teach, it doesn't always start the way you think it should start. You paid attention to something like a musician pays attention to a tuning fork. You said it three or four different ways. You wanted to be on the radio, so you, I mean, I'm very impressed you gave it five years. So you tried to get on the radio in the only way anybody could get on the radio, which is going past what I call the dragons. And the dragons had very closed minds and they had very clear goals and they had those goals had nothing to do with somebody like you. They were commercial or God knows what. I went to public broadcasting. I went to, well, NPR was interested, but I had an issue with their contract. They required me to sign over everything at the submission stage. Yeah. And I said, this doesn't feel right to me. I'm not going to do this. I'm just not going to do that. And I was okay with it. I was really okay with it. But basically, that was the way you had to have somebody else do things for you. I'm, you know, I'm one of the main reasons I'm glad I lived this long is because I've watched the music business, um, you know, which used to crucify young musicians who were really talented. And the publishing business, which was just a little rougher than it looks from the outside, um, and even the you know even the public radio and television stations, but certainly the commercial ones, they just you know they just ran the show. It was like getting into the movies. If you were a gifted filmmaker, too bad. You know, if you were a gifted actor, too bad. They decided who made it, and that's the way it was most of my life and before. And it changed right in front of our eyes. A lot of it is the Internet. And and what happened now is you go on YouTube and gifted filmmakers are putting up their films. And and Hollywood is scouring YouTube to see who they can put money behind. 
because that's where the talent is. And people, gifted radio people like you, are saying, hell with it, I've had enough. I'm going to just do it myself. Yeah, and, and it's a part of it. you originally did it for three days, and you, know, you thought that was the right thing to do, and then you said, wait a minute, you started listening to yourself, and you said, i got a better way to do it. And you, it, little by little, you made it match your talent and your, your wishes until it's just right. And nobody else can give you that. And that's because now we have an option we never had before. Exactly. We all had to walk through the big Cecil B. DeMille's, and they decided who got in and what you had to pay to get in. It was a fascinating process, but what was also interesting to me in terms of the process was there was the submission side, but there's also the back end, which is the legal financial side. And I'm a business person too, and they thought they were talking to, quote, a host and a journalist. What they didn't realize when we got to contracts is who I really am, which is way more than that, and they didn't like that person. So, you know, if in a contract in the fine print, it said, if you mention anything that upsets the audience, we can pull the show. Once you submit something to us, it becomes ours. We never have to talk to you again. We can take it and do it in-house as is. And I said no to that. You can't do that. That's of course. The, okay? You can't, well, you can't give that. Well, that you, look, if you like 27 things and radio was just one of them, maybe oh, yeah. you could have given it away. But you can't give it away when that's what you love. You yeah, well, I mean, I believe that when we go into agreements and contracts, they're animate, they have consciousness, and that that is the ground of everything you're going to do with that person or that group. So you have to pay attention to the fine print. But anyway, it was a fascinating thing. And if I'd sensed myself that they were in touch with my life or death in the radio business, then it would have been a different thing. But they it wasn't. Once. At one time, they were that five years you tried. <laughs> you know, I had somebody came to see me, a head, of, a head of a big publishing company, when I was running the workshop before I had written Wishcraft. And, and he came to see me. His wife had come. And he, she said, you better see this lady. And so he came. And he talked to me afterwards. He said, how would you like to get bought? And I said, oh, God, please, where do I sign? You know, I'm tired of licking stamps, and I only have $11. And he sent me out to a huge outplacement firm, a very famous one still around, and to the top man. And I went in to talk to him. And I don't, every time people would come and find me and then send me in to talk to the top man, like at a radio, you know, a, a huge radio conglomerate or at this great big company, the people they sent me to talk to didn't like me. They just had to see me because the boss said they did. And I've had that experience more than once. So I, I walked in, and he was a little, uh, he was acting nice, but he was horrible. And, and then I, he, I said, let me ask you a question because what you're saying is confusing me a little bit. Are you saying that I would sell my success team's workshops and all the books and everything else that ever comes out of it to you, and, um, and I would work for you as part of that? But you could take it and put it on the shelf if you decided that it didn't wasn't profitable enough, and I could never use it again. He said, "That's right." I said, "You know, I'm broke, but I'm not stupid," and I left. Actually, that's what I said to NPR. They said I was the second person in history that ever read their contract word for word, detail crossed out one word on page six, and they sent it to legal and said she refuses to sign it as is in a nice way, I said, I know what I have and you're not getting it the way you're requiring it. Yep. It's about the terms, isn't it? The terms are everything. It's about knowing what's important about what you do 
It's about evaluating what people want you to do with it. You know, if you have a child and this child is a happy child and somebody says, I'll give you a lot of money if you will put this child into this particular situation which will make this child very successful and very unhappy, you say, well, guess what? (laughs) You don't have enough money for that. Mm-hmm. They never offer you a lot of money anyway. So, they, they, you know, I don't understand it. All I know is I'm glad things have changed, you know, and for for the people who are listening to us, you know, they're thinking, you know, will I ever run into this problem? Everybody runs into it. The minute you do what you love, your talent shows. The minute your talent shows, everybody around you says, well, will it make money? And everybody thinks, I, I don't want to work at another job. I want to do this. Full-time, I want to be happy full-time. I want to do work that I love. And what I always say to them is, look, if you, it depends on what you're talking about. If you love finance, then you go ahead and go to work. You'll get rich doing what you love. Um, And if you're a business person and you love business, it doesn't much matter what you do in business. Go ahead, do it, because you've got a natural ability for it. You'll change businesses, but you love the business characteristic of it. You'll make money. Don't worry about a thing. But if there's something that you love and it doesn't make money, you have to do it. It might even be better to do it without money. It might make money someday. It might not. But if you, number one, you don't have to do what you love 24 hours a day. You don't even want to. I had a friend who was a painter, and she was a teacher, and she wanted more time. And her husband finally said, look, I'm doing fine. Why don't you quit? And he got a room ready for her, a studio, and she came home and quit teaching. And she quit teaching for two years, and she could not paint at all. So she went back and got a part-time teaching job, and she started painting. And I said, yeah, if you're a serious artist, painting is like looking into the face of God. You're not just fooling around. You know, you know, you you need a nice little job where you can go and people talk around the water cooler and they laugh at your jokes and they think you're clever because you're a good organizer or a good communicator or something. That's a nourishing job for a lot of people. Maybe that's the job you should have and maybe you should not paint full-time. Maybe it's just too much. That's intense, you know. Art is extraordinary. And doing what you love in any way is very intense. You, you you care completely about it because you understand it. You understand what you're trying to do, and nobody else understands it until you get it full-grown and they can see it. And at the beginning, that's never the case. So you have to trust your feelings. You have to protect the thing that's important to you. And you have to figure out another way to make money, a way you don't hate. It doesn't make you sick. Um, but it's, you know, I had a friend who got her Ph.D. in English literature or in, I think it was in English literature, and she went to the Iowa Writing School and everything, and she made all her money cleaning apartments. And she said, I love this job. She said, I don't like cleaning my own house because it's never done. But I walk in, nobody's there, I clean up, they leave the money on the table, I leave, I can tell when it's just the way I want it. I've never had a job I love better. She said, I I don't know, if they offer me a job as a professor, I might not take it, I might keep cleaning apartments. (laughs) I have two last questions. I know you have to run, but in the last 30 years, when your first book took off, did you personally or professionally struggle on a financial level? When my first book came out, it didn't take off. 
um, when my first book came out, I got it. Um, it seemed like an awful lot of money to me. Um, but I had a job, and I would continue to work that job. But what happened was the, the paperback was supposed to come out a year after. The book didn't sell very many copies in hardback. And um, a paperback was supposed to come out in a year, and it didn't. And after, four, you know, nobody talks to you. And I had I, at the time, I had an agent who, a, a big one, but who had changed jobs or somebody disappeared or something happened, and the book wasn't being very well taken care of. And so um, as a result, the it turned out that the paperback company was going out of business and, and, and Malentine bought up all their contracts and was not going to put Wishcraft out. Oh my God. And so I went in there. I mean, I didn't, I, I was very broke and I went in and said, I want to buy it back. You can't have it. And she said, I beg your pardon. I said, I, I want it back. And she thought that was amusing. So she put out, printed out. She said, well, you know, if the author likes it that much, let's see. And she put out like 6,500 copies and they were gone in a week. Wow. And people were calling me saying, I want, I want to read your book. And I would call the publisher and they'd say, they'd wait six months and then they would put another 6,500. There were never books on the shelves. This is pure death for a book. And they, you know, and I had to keep nagging them, and then they put out a twenty five hundred. They wouldn't put out a lot of books. So one day I was in a, I, I worked hard to get into magazines, and one day I was in McCall's magazine, and their PR person got me on the Phil Donahue show, and he gave me the whole hour, and I did a, you know, a show where I worked with people in the audience. We made their dreams come true. It was the most astonishing thing you ever saw. And after that, that next week, fifty thousand, every bookstore in the country said, "Where the hell are our copies?" And it sold 50000 in advance, and they couldn't get the books out in time. And they still tried to screw it up. I mean, it was terrible. The book didn't, get, didn't take off till about seven years after it came out. Works have and a life of time, their own, I was don't just, they? I was just scratching by. I was just struggling to pay my bills in that time. So so, you, and that happened yeah. even with my public television show, which was the first one I did, which was a great one. San Francisco had written me saying we want you on public television, and the publishing house kept used to in the old days used to keep mail for six months before they sent it to the author. And when I got it, I immediately contacted San Francisco. And they said that was six months ago. We're not. We can't do it anymore. So I worked hard, and somebody got me on a Denver show, and they shot a, a really good show. I did a really good show there, and then they decided they wouldn't put it out. It wasn't. They didn't do too well enough the first night. It's turned out to be the best of all my shows, and it's. They're still showing it. It was shot in '99, and it's it's still doing very well. And um, you know, it's just very. I have often been struggling after my earlier books. When my when after I got on Oprah, and my book had been I could do anything was on bestseller lists all over the country for quite a while before Oprah uh, Oprah's producers picked it up. And Oprah's the one show, you know, every other show won't even talk to you if your book has, has been out for longer than two or three weeks. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, but her, this book was out a year before Oprah Oprah did what she wanted. You know, She made her own rules, bless her heart. And I was on her show, and after that, you know, I got on the New York Times bestseller list, and they figured I was related to the Queen of England, and everything <laughs> went a lot better after that. But, um, you know, that was, a, that was like 20 years after Wishcraft was out. Wow. You know, my, it was just, it was amazing. So, no, uh-uh, you don't, you, you can't say the rest is history at any point in my career. That's really humbling, isn't it? You know, my, my mother used to say, she said, you work so hard, honey. And I said, eh, I was awake anyway, Ma. You know, 
<laughs> the truth is that the I, I've had job. You know, I had jobs when my kids were small, working for other people, and I just don't have the temperament for it. I can't take any crap. I mean, I'm too thin-skinned. I get really um, upset, and then I finally get angry. And uh, working for myself has just always been so much more interesting. And even when I think, oh, boy, I'm going to go broke if I don't do this or I don't do that, that's my kind of work. I roll my sleeves up and get to work, and I bring it home, and somebody says, wow, that's good. And somebody else says, fix this, and then we do it. And, um, you know, I've never been rich. I've had, I've had some opportunities. I mean, some infomercials back in the day when they did that stuff. I don't know if they still do. All kinds of opportunities, and every one of them had something really ugly about it that I wouldn't go near. It was just too much like selling your kid into slavery. I couldn't do it. I think that's extraordinary. And, uh, so I never got rich. And I, you know what? But I, I haven't missed a meal. My kids haven't missed a meal. You know, we've all been fine. And I like to work. I think that's probably one of the greatest secrets that to my success is I don't like to work at anything, but I like to work at what I like to work at, what I care about. And uh, that's, you know, I'd be doing it anyway. I got a huge advance once, and I didn't need to make money for five years. I got to tell you, I was bored. <laughs> I could totally get that. <laughs> Until I needed money again, I wasn't even creative. I thought, oop, I better get back to work. <laughs> Very so, interesting. Uh, you know, I'm fine. I'm f that's the way I like to live. I think it's extraordinary. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Hi, everybody. I just want to take a minute or two and share with you that we really appreciate you listening and sharing with your friends and loved ones and colleagues. And if you like the show, show it. Write something really cool and really nice on It's Rainmaking Time at iTunes. We have our own store there. And like our Facebook page. If you haven't signed up for the newsletter, feel free to do that. We send a bi-monthly newsletter out. And if you like it, share it with all your friends. Another thing we wanted to share with you is that somebody stepped in and started to do transcriptions for us. We have some transcriptions already done. If you would be interested, please drop us a line. We will be posting the transcriptions that are ready for sale. That's another way to assist the show. And for those of you who are in a position to donate $10 a month or $20 a month or more, please do so. Action speaks louder than words. We appreciate you. And thanks again for listening to It's Rainmaking Time. And back to the show. My last question to you is when The Secret took off in 2006, people were running to this like it was the, quote, make it happen recipe. I know it's not about your work. It is about my work. It is about your work, but it's also your work no, is about the opposite of my work. Exactly. It's the opposite. And it didn't look new to me. You know, no. I've been around a while and this whole idea is that you squeeze hard, you don't believe something, it'll pop out of the sky and fall on your lap has pissed me off for decades. You know, I don't even believe in positive thinking. I mean, if you feel positive, that's great. But if you don't leave it alone, because it doesn't make the slightest bit of difference. You mess with your feelings, and you're looking for big trouble. You know, if you feel lousy, you feel lousy. You'll still go to work. You'll still do your job. You'll still take care of your kids. You know, you'll still get up in the morning. You'll brush your teeth. Not because you feel like it, but because you have to. And, um, you know, when it, 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 this business of believing in you, I, I say, look, you've got things to do. If you're somebody who wants a radio show or you're somebody who wants to write a book, your mind is very full. You got better things to do than sit around trying to love yourself. That just takes up a lot of energy. It's very hard. I don't know what it's for. I know that after the age of two, a psychiatrist will tell you that if you think you can bend the universe to your will, you 
got you got to go into therapy. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm I'm from the 50s. I we, we really we called that mysticism in the old days. You know, and now lots of books. I mean, I've been saying this for 30 years. I say I say I'm going to show you how to have a life you love and work that's exciting, and you're going to be glad to get up in the morning and do what you're doing. You know, and you're going to be okay. You're going to be able to pay your rent, and you're going to be able to, you'll be okay. Uh, but don't ask me for bliss, because I don't do bliss. If you want bliss, take drugs. Don't bother me. I'm not interested in bliss. <laughs> bliss is when you walk around with your feet three feet off the ground. Maybe after you're dead, that's what will happen. I don't know. But I don't do bliss. I do, God, I'm glad to wake up. God, I'm glad I'm alive. God, I'm glad to wake up today. God, there's something I want to do today. That's who I am. That's what I'll show you because it's inside you. You were designed to live that way. And if you've been frustrated and stopped, I know how to get you free. I know how that's the only, I'm a one trick pony, Kim. I don't, I don't have a lot of things I can do well. One of the reasons I've stayed in the field I'm in is because I'm horrible at everything else. <laughs> when I had to work for the city at an at administrative job and, and welfare, it was a department of welfare where you hey, had colors and pieces of paper and hand them to the right people in order to get some really decent, hardworking person a couple of bucks who was waiting down and everybody was callous and obnoxious. And, you know, when, when I worked, I, I couldn't remember what order. To, I was incompetent. I couldn't file. I couldn't remember the alphabet to file. I tried to do it right, and I was lousy at it. So my life's always been pretty simple. Either I do something naturally and I'm good at it, or I can't do it at all, and I get fired. So, I, you know, fortunately, that's the, it's worked out for me. I have to do what I love. I'm rotten at everything else. But I've also always had to make a living. I had to pay the rent. When you got little kids, you can't fool around. And so when you're trying to think of what you want, the first question I ask is, how close are you to being on the streets? And if you say, I got two months, I say, don't spend any money, not on me or anybody else. Go get a job and find one you don't hate if you can, because otherwise you're going to have to change it and get another one. Because if you stay at a job that makes you sick, then you're going to get sick and you're going to get fired. And then you're going to hate yourself. And depression is harder to cure than unemployment. I love it so that number you're one, so practical. Make sure you got food in the cupboard, right? Make sure you got food in the cupboard. And then number two, let's see what you love so that your life is worth something and you're developing something that will grow. And number three, let's see if we can find you a better job that doesn't bother you and will pay. You know what I call a good enough job? A job that doesn't work you too many hours and the people are okay and nobody aggravates you and it lets you sleep at night because you're covered, you got money and, and health insurance. I call that a subsidy to the art. I love that. I love that phrase. It's true, isn't it? <laughs> you call it also so, uh, a good enough job, right? A good enough job. A good enough job is a job that doesn't work you more than 40 hours. It doesn't. Nobody aggravates you so much that you want to throw up or get drunk when you get home. Nobody's picking on you. You know, nobody's doing this weird politics on you. The work you do, it doesn't include murder or things that you might be really <laughs> unhappy about doing, right? Yes. Um, and then its worst characteristic is it just isn't enough. That job is like a mule. It's like an honest, healthy mule. It is not a Cadillac, but it will take you where you want to go. And that's a decent job. I, I know people who, the only thing they love in the whole world is reading Victorian novels. And they don't even want to make money at it. And I, I know one who's in one of my books who got a job as an administrative assistant at a, at a some company. It was very pleasant. The people were nice. 
um, he did it, and he loved it, and he came home, and he read Victorian novels. And he had friends, and he liked to go out for a beer, and he had a nice He liked his life. You're really... And that's okay with me. I don't know what his mother wanted for him, but boy, I know what he wanted, and that's what counts. You're really in the business of facilitating people through higher wisdom, in a sense, and practicality. And I really call you a midwife. You really remind me of a midwife. <laughs> I, I love it. I, I, I love that very much. I really do. And one of these days, if we talk again, I'll talk to you about resistance, because I don't know why people haven't stolen that from me yet. I've been saying the same thing for 30 years, but I've been developing it, too. And when it comes to the people who love so many different things, you know, that's a very interesting... You're talking to one of them. I well, love I, that I love helping people the, with their... You've got the career. <laughs> you know, people say, what? I call them scanners. You know, they just love yes. lots and lots of things. And I, they say, what, is a, what, what kind of a career can a scanner do? I say, well, they can be a talk show host. <laughs> they can be a writer, because they write, you know, write about anything they want. You know, there's, they can, there's a lot of... depends on what you like. I once did stand-up comedy about one of my greatest... Not fears, but something that would mortify me is for years, people would ask me what I do. And this is before it's rainmaking time, because I consider myself a rainmaker. If I agree to do something for you, it will be done, period. That's it. That's all I know about myself. And if I love it or I'm interested in it, it's done. That's all I know, okay? And I would never tell people that I have this ability because I didn't want to sound arrogant and I didn't want to be improper and all that. But the fact is, if I agree to do something for you or if I come in to assist you with something, it's going to be incredible. But, you know, you can't walk around and tell people that. But I didn't want anybody to ask me what I do. Or when people did ask me what I do, there was like this silence. I could write a book on the funniest things I've answered. <laughs> oh, please. I have in my hanging out thing. I, that's one of my, that's my Wednesday. I said, what do you do exactly? And we came up with lots of fun things. I said, you know, you can always look at them and say, if I tell you, I'll have to kill you. <laughs> or you can say, um, I work for the IRS. Is that your car? Oh my God, that's so funny. Car, you know, <laughs> or you can say, um, I'm a proctologist. <laughs> and give them a big smile. You know, there are a lot, because people, you know, I was in an airport once and somebody, people were sitting around talking because the plane was late. And somebody asked what I did. I said, I'm a writer. And this man turned to me with the usual sneer and he said, been published yet? And I was very, very happy to be able to say, yes, I'm on the New York Times bestseller list. What about you? Yeah. You know, because he was he was sneering like a lot of people sneer at writers. But a lot of writers are very good writers and they don't they weren't on the New York Times bestseller list and I wasn't for the first twenty years of my writing life. Right. So um I thought that can be a mean question. Yeah. And when it's a mean question, you gotta have a mean answer. <laughs> Because, you know, I always say, I'm sorry, I'm not a Christian. I, I don't turn the other cheek. My God is a vengeful God. <laughs> <laughs> and I, there's, kind of, there's certain kinds of revenge, not the kind that actually injure anybody or could do real harm, but the kind, you know, where people feel like their shorts are just a little too tight. That's good for you to get that kind of revenge on other people. It's, it, it keeps you from being a victim. And I always say, you know, there's certain kinds of revenge that'll put the roses in your cheeks. First, make sure people deserve it. Then make sure that it isn't something that will destroy anybody's life and you're willing to have the world know you did it. And then have some fun because certain people deserve to have their shorts twisted. <laughs> do you believe that books are animate, like they have their own life almost? What do you think about that? I don't know, but, you know... I had to go through um, a bunch of kudos that I got for my books two or three nights ago, and some of them were from Amazon.com, and others were just letters people had written to me. 
And I either hadn't read them or I hadn't remembered them. But the things people said astonished me. They said, you know, two years ago I was doing this. I said, you know, wishcraft, I just bring it out every time to read it again. And now I've done this and I've done that and I was doing And I thought, good God, I didn't know it was going to do that much. Do they have, you know, somebody once said to me, ah, what can you learn from a book? I said, excuse me? You know, excuse me, literacy is what changed us from cavemen into a civilization. You know, people, <laughs> and people, you know, the greatest minds in the world that we know of are written down if you can figure out how to read them, and somebody has. Um, but I never expected I would say that about my own books. I know what I'm trying to do, but it never occurred to me that I that really, and I know when I've done it for individuals, and I love that, it makes me really happy. But I had no idea, and, and I was going through, like, I did it for an hour. I was going through, through two or three of my books, and I had to stop. And I thought, my God, this is humbling. People pick up my books, and they read them, and they say, this is different from other books. This book is a hand reaching out to help me. And they do it, and their lives change. Uh, do I think a book has a life? I don't know what it has, but boy, it's got, if you use your own voice, if you are honest, if you mean what you say, if you're not a hustler, if you're not stealing from somebody else, if you believe this in your heart, you know, the thing I teach when I used to do writing, speaking classes, I would say, you have a message inside you and I'm going to tell you how to find it. And I had a one six hour telephone class where you didn't leave that class until you thought, oh my God, I know exactly what my message is. And it's a message that comes from your own childhood. It's a message of something that you have been trying to fix probably since you were a baby or a little kid. And when you, there are a lot of things in the world that matter to you, but there are certain things in the world that when you see them, you can't stand it. You have to try to fix them. And those are what create drive. And nothing can touch drive. Drive makes you happy? I don't know. It makes you, it gives your life meaning. You have to do it. It's important. There are certain kinds of things that go wrong in the world that you can't stand. And when you realize what they are, you know exactly what to do about them because that's you. Uh, there's this book called Outliers by Malcolm, um, Malcolm Gladstone. And in it, he says something people often quote to me. He says, if you want to really make it big, you've got to give 10,000 hours to what you're doing. That's what the Beatles did. And that's what some, and everybody goes, oh my God, I'm already 55. And I said, but if you don't understand, if you, if I'll show you how, and if you can find out what your, what it is you must do, what you're driven to do, you've already put in 30,000 hours. You started when you were four. Every year, you put in a minimum of an hour or two a day, probably a lot more than that. Add it up, kiddo. Everybody's done more than 10,000 hours already when we're talking about that. You're an expert. You've got the empathy to spot people who need you in a crowd. You have the intolerance of certain kinds of cruelty or unfairness or loneliness or self-defeatingness. You've got an understanding of that that's in your bones since you were a baby. Yours or somebody you saw or something. You're an expert, you know, you're an expert. And if you don't believe me, take a look. Do people, these are people who want to help others. They want to write, you know, books that will make a difference and help people, not, not fiction. And, um, and I say, you know, you want to make a difference? You know how, or you wouldn't want to. You're all, people are already coming up to you at work and in person and asking you for help, and you're already giving it. Am I right or wrong? And they'll go, oh, yeah. 
And I say, don't look at credentials. Because until the Germans invented them, they weren't in the medieval universities, until they were invented in the 1800s, nobody knew what they were. The best teacher got the students. The students walked out of other people's classes. And, you know, our grandmothers in the hills of Russia knew there were some of them who knew exactly what to tell people. They did not need a degree. They invented it. They knew what it was. And everybody's got a gift like that, at least one. And when you combine a gift with a need to fix something, you've got drive. You've got, you've got drive, and you, nobody can touch you. you. Nobody can touch you. If there's 50,000 people doing what you're doing, it doesn't matter. There's room for you, and you'll do fine. So You know, you are the poet Rumi of your realm, and it is such an honor and a pleasure to be here Thank with you. Thank you so much. I'm very flattered. I love Rumi. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else you wanted to say, Barbara? Not really. I've had such a good time. I have too. And if you would like to, at the proper time for you, let's do a piece on resistance. I'd be happy to do it or anything okay, else you'd like to do. Okay, let's set up a schedule because I'd love to talk about it because nobody, you know, nobody talks about it enough. And I really feel bad um, when people, you know, say, well, I've got to work harder and I've just got to believe in myself and get started again. I go, no, you don't. you got to get started again, but you don't do it by loving yourself. You know, no, you don't, you know, or I'm bad. I'm, I, I should try harder. That won't work. <laughs> I want to, you know, when I'm on your show, there are people who are going to listen to me who don't hear me anywhere else. So I want, I want to tell them to, so they can cut themselves loose of that painful stuff. I, I, I blame all the Puritans for it. I don't know who's really to blame, but that makes it simple. You know, it, life doesn't have to be like that. That doesn't work. It never did. I don't know why we still do it. But there's a way to get around resistance that is so normal and intelligent and easy. And blaming and scolding yourself is so silly. You know, you have to do it. It's like going to church in the old days and getting your head knocked in so you're you're a sinner and you feel all better till Wednesday when you start sinning again. Then you got to go back on Sunday and get your head knocked in again. You know, I, there's got to be a better way. And there is. So much better. Barbara Scher, thank you so much for joining us on It's Rainmaking Time. For those of you who would like to attend Barbara's workshops and retreats and pick up her books, as well as to join her Hanging Out Club, you can go to barbarasclub.com and then a slash and hanging out. And you can also go to Barbara Scher's main site as well, barbarascher.com. That's right. And purchase her books and get involved. And I really want to acknowledge Barbara as a master teacher and midwife of Soul Candy and many, many, many happy people around the world that are doing the things that are of most meaning to them. Thank you so much, Barbara. Thank you, Kim. Thank you very much. And P.S. See you in France. (laughs) Okay. Okay. we got an extra room. Tell me when you're coming. I'll be there in January. Okay. Oh, oh, no, no, don't. I'll be in New York in January. No, there you go. We'll do a switch. Okay. Great.